You're listening to the RUF at UT podcast. You're never so bad that you're beyond the reach of God's grace. And you are never so good that you are beyond the need of God's grace. For more information, go to www.utk.ruf.org. We have been saying each week that the book of Revelation is sort of like um, theology for visual learners. It's a collage of images that comes at you to reveal something to you, not about what life is going to look like 7,000 years from now, but what your life looks like right now. It reveals to you your current experience, namely this, that things are not as they seem. That's the central point of the book of Revelation, is to communicate to you that what you see around you, your circumstances, things are not all as they seem. So what we're going to do tonight is jump into uh, just the next chapter. We're in Revelation chapter 5, so if you have this little handout or a Bible, you can follow along, or a smartphone, you can follow along, or an iPad, and you can follow along, or something else. So we're in Revelation 5. We'll begin in verse 1, and I'll just read through the end of the chapter, which goes to 14. It says this, Then I, this is the Apostle John, Then I saw in the right hand of him who is seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. This is God's word. If you would, let me pray and then we'll consider it together. 
Father, thank you for your word. Uh, thank you for even just this worship service that we see spelled out in this passage. And while many of us uh, probably do, uh, that our hearts are not linked up with that amount of enthusiasm and adoration for you, I pray that by your Spirit's help, you would nudge us one step closer to that. Because so many of us come into this room tonight just so distracted and overwhelmed with everything that we have to get done. Some of us come into this room um, coming off of a week that has just been um, brutal and busy and we just feel bombarded with the amount of stuff that you have to do. And some of us come into this uh, room, this church, feeling just overwhelmed with guilt and regret. Or maybe we come into this room with doubt and with suspicion over just being at a kind of a Christian-y, churchy place like this. Some of us come in here really angry, really frazzled. Father, regardless of how we um, find ourselves in here tonight, would you open up our eyes that we would be able to behold that which is true and that which is really good? Would you warm our hearts? Would you uh, move our hearts? Draw us to yourself by your spirit. We would ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know if you've seen the TV show... The Office, um, but uh, one of my uh, a scene that kind of stood out to me recently was: Do you remember when Andy was transferring from the Stanford branch and he was coming to the Scranton branch? And for the first time, like right before he goes into the building for his first day on the kind of his new job, he looks at the camera. He's still in the parking lot. He's about to go in, and here's what he says: He says, "I'll be the number two guy here in Scranton in six weeks." How? Name repetition, personality mirroring, and never breaking off a handshake. I'm always thinking one step ahead, like a carpenter that makes stairs. <laughs> remember Andy goes into the, into the office and him and Dwight have the handshake and there's like the handshake standoff or who's going to you know, break the handshake for the first time. And so he's got this, he goes into this new job with a plan. It's a you know, pretty ridiculous plan, but he goes through and he executes it uh, nonetheless. And that just, that just got me thinking because I've heard from so many of y'all as college students, one of the most annoying questions that you get is that question, namely, what is your plan? Like, what, is your, uh, what do you plan on majoring in? Or what do you plan on doing this summer? What do you plan on doing after you graduate? What, what is your professional five-year plan? What is your personal strategic 10-year plan? And you know, when you hear those questions, I think the reason why they're annoying and they're kind of frustrating is because you don't have an answer to that question, but because it's been asked, it kind of feels like you should have an answer to that question, right? Like, if someone's asking you, what's your five-year plan, you're like, that's a thing? Like, I didn't know people had those. Okay, uh, I don't have that. And so I think that, that's, a, that's a helpful question, though, to think about what your plan is for the future. And to just sort of do a thought experiment with me on the front end. Do you think God has a plan? Does God have a plan? I don't think that's as easy of a question as you think it is. Because most Americans, if they believe that God exists would not say that they believe that God has a plan. Most Americans are actually uh, subscribers to a worldview called deism, which is an idea that God, maybe he's the creator, 
And he kind of creates everything and he kind of winds it up like a clock, but then he just sort of sets the clock down and kind of lets it tick and kind of lets it do its thing. And he does not intervene and he doesn't really have a plan. And so God's relationship with the world, God's relationship with your life and with human history is sort of like, uh, you know, your relationship with your great-great-great-grandfather. He's part of the reason for why you're here, but you don't really have a relationship with him. He doesn't really have any sort of involvement in your life. So does God have a plan? How you answer that question, and by the way, you came through this door tonight having an answer to that question. How you have chosen to answer that question has massive implications for your life. And what I think is so interesting about this passage is it takes on that gigantic question. Does God have a plan? And it begins to answer it by really showing us three things. One, by showing us the hope of world history. Secondly, by showing us the central event of world history. And then by showing us your role in world history, what your place is in world history. So those are the three big sort of massive ideas we're going to look at tonight. The hope of world history, the central event of world history, and then your role in it. And that will help us get at this idea of does God have a plan? And if so, does that even matter? So first, let's look at this idea of the hope of world history. If you were here last week or if you're looking at a Bible, you kind of flip to just the chapter before that, before this. Chapter 4 ends with everything in the throne room of heaven screaming and worshiping and adoring God because he's on the throne. But chapter 5 begins a little abruptly because it begins with someone weeping. If you look at verse 4 in your little handout there, here you have John, who is the author of this book, weeping loudly, sobbing hysterically, like uncontrollably. And the question is why? Why is he becoming so undone? And the answer to figure out what is going on with him emotionally, it, it all goes on, it, it all connects with this deal about the scroll. I don't know if you noticed, but this idea of like the scroll shows up all throughout this passage. So we've got to figure out what the scroll is. What is the scroll? Well, if you look at verse 1, you see that the one on the throne, who is God, has a scroll and it's rolled up and it's sealed with seven seals. Now, in the, you know, the ancient Near East, anytime someone had a document that needed to be sealed or contained, they didn't put it in an envelope or an envelope, depending on how you pronounce it. They would roll it up like a scroll, and then they would put this glob of hot wax over the edge of it and kind of seal it up. But this scroll has seven seals on it. And remember, the number seven is extremely significant in the book of Revelation because it is symbolic for completeness, for perfection. So every scholar that I looked at all agreed that what this document is, what this scroll represents, is the complete, perfect plan of God. These are his blueprints for the world, for world history. How he's going to take this world that has been damaged and affected by evil and sin and renovate it and transform it into a beautiful and glorious new world. And the reason why it's written on both sides of the scroll, if you noticed, which is a little weird because most scrolls were only written on one side, the reason why it's written on both sides is because it, it contains every detail there is, which means it doesn't just contain massive world history sort of events, it contains every detail in your life and every detail in my life. 
That's what this sort of scroll represents. And so if you look at verse 2, there's this angel that steps up and says, who's worthy to open this? Who's worthy to open this scroll? And the, and the idea, what's really being asked there is this. Who in the world is capable of even understanding what God's plan is for the universe? And who's capable of carrying it out? Who it could possibly fix this world that is so damaged and is so broken? It, it got me thinking about this um, just to sort of put a little texture to what is going on here. It, it reminded me of the story that I read recently uh, which is a true story, and it has been confirmed to be true, even though it sounds a little crazy, that one of the ways that um, pilots are trained towards the end of their sort of training season, at, at I guess sort of the tail end of, uh, of a pilot's training time, they'll go up in the plane with a, a kind of a coach, a trainer, and uh, what the coach will do, I'm assuming that the, that the trainee knows this is going to happen. Maybe not. But the coach will put a bag over the trainee's head so that they can't see. And then the coach will then proceed to do these flips and loops and twists and sort of basically just make the plane go crazy to totally disorient the pilot in training. And then the coach will take the plane up super high and then nosedive it to the earth, take the bag off the pilot's head, and then hand him the controls. With the idea being, you're disoriented, you come to, can you, are you capable enough to pull this plane out of pending disaster? Crazy, has been confirmed to be true. Praise Jesus, I'm not a pilot. (laughs) But I think that's sort of the image here. It's like the image is, if you look at the world, if you read the news, the world seems to be careening and doomed to just total disaster. And the question that's being asked is, who in the world is capable enough to kind of pull it out? Who who would be capable enough of understanding human history with all of its complexity and all of its details and fix it? That's the question that's being asked. And the answer that is provided in verse 3 is this. No one. No one is worthy enough to carry this thing out. No one is able to fix the mess here. And just so you, just so you can understand what's pr- what this practically means, if no one can open up this scroll, if no one can understand and execute God's plan, then what that means for you and me is that things are exactly as they seem. That you woke up in a world this morning that has no purpose and no hope and no meaning. And human history and world history is going nowhere. That we live in a world that is chaotic and violent. And there is injustice that is running rampant. And evil goes unchecked. And things are basically exactly as they seem. And that is why John is weeping. That's why he's uncontrollably weeping because he looks out at the world and says, if no one can fix this, if no one can roll out the scroll and execute God's plan, then things are exactly as they seem. And we should just go eat, drink, and be merry because tomorrow we die. And if this doesn't break your heart too, then you're not doing the math. Then you're not paying attention. When people go into elementary schools with machine guns, or they go into packed movie theaters with machine guns, or they set up bombs at the Boston Marathon, or they walk into schools or to synagogues with bombs strapped to their bodies, 
or they go into a magazine publisher in Paris with machine guns and just start shooting anything that they can see. What that does inside of you and what it does inside of me is it creates this ache that says, that is not okay. Like, that's not right. Some, that is unjust and someone needs to hold these people accountable. But what is so frustrating so often is because when people go into a room like this and shoot up the place, so often they turn the gun on themselves, right? And there's that sense of they just got to leave this wake of carnage and misery and, and they just pull the trigger on themselves and they don't get to own up to what they did. They don't get to face justice. No one gets to hold them accountable. And it just sort of leaves you with this ache that there goes, there's evil that is unchecked. Or just think about this. Think about human trafficking. That you woke up in a world this morning where uh, children, children are being abducted from their families and are being uh, forced into an industry that is um, obviously extremely sexually exploitive where they're being raped and forced into prostitution and pornography so that someone else can profit off of it. And that industry, if you can even call it that, is so lucrative, it is so pervasive, it's not going away. And you see evil that is going on unchecked. And it makes you ache. I I read an article in... Uh, CNN a couple of weeks ago uh, about a man that went through went under um, capital punishment in Oklahoma because he was convicted of having raped and killed uh, raped and killing uh, an 11 month old child raping and killing an 11 month old child and even though uh, he was executed I, I just got to think as a parent in that situation that doesn't heal the wound that that creates. That doesn't fix the the deep ache that that sort of leaves. And if you think about, okay, don't just think about massive world events. Think about your own life, knowing that in a room the size that some of you have been abused. Some of you have had people come into your life and take things from you that you can't get back. And you're left with the wounds and you're left with the damage and they're just out there, no consequences. And evil goes unchecked. Or do you think maybe, maybe you're in a situation where someone has cheated you or robbed you or taken something from you and you're left with this thing that I, I can't get this thing back and someone is out there and the consequences go unchecked. And this is why John is crying. Because if we live in a world where world history is moving to a destination where evildoers are not held to account, where all the scars will not be healed where all the sadness will not become untrue, where all the wrongs will be made right, if everything is just as it seems, then it should break your heart. And honestly, we should just sort of fold up shop and just quit wasting our time here. But the point of revelation, remember, is that things are not as they seem. That human history is not careening towards Doom. What does it show you? In verse 5, you have a voice that enters into the sadness that says what? Weep no more. Why? Behold, look, 
The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and the seven seals. This is saying there is one that can bring about God's plan for human history. There is one that can make sense of the violence and the injustice. There is one that can take the universe and make this story have a happy ending. And that's Jesus. And that is why he is described as as the Lion of Judah. This is language from Genesis 49. This prophecy that there is going to be one that is going to come that is strong and fierce and will triumph over his enemies. He's described as the Root of David, which is a reference to Isaiah 6 and Isaiah 11 to basically say there is an heir that will take David's throne. There is a long-awaited king that will come and make things right. Here's the basic point of all this kind of first idea. God has a plan, and Jesus is the one that executes it. God does have a plan, and Jesus is the one that carries it out. World history is moving to a happy ending. Because Jesus has said, I'm inaugurating a new world. I'm renovating this planet so that all evildoers will be held to account. All the scars will be healed. All the wrongs will be made right. All the sadness will become untrue because of me. And if you actually grasp what I'm actually telling you tonight, that changes everything. That changes everything about your life, or at least it should. And actually, the rest of the book of Revelation is going to unpack the implications of what that even is. Next week, we're going to look at the implications of what it looks like to suffer. In a couple of weeks, we'll look at what it means to face temptation. I mean, this changes everything about your life. God has a plan, and Jesus is the one that executes it. This is the hope of world history. But this raises the question, okay, how, though, how does God plan to fix this place? Because as I just sort of cited some examples, it's, it's a broken, fractured, evil world that we woke up in this morning. How does God fix it? Well, we've got to look, secondly, at the central event of human history, the central event. If you look at verse 6, John looks and he's expecting to see this giant ferocious lion. But what does he see? He sees a lamb. And actually the word that John uses for lamb is like a little lamb, like not just a normal lamb, it's like a small lamb a middle schooler could carry around. Small lamb standing as if it had been slain. And the way that they slayed lambs back in the day was to slit their throat. So here is this lamb that has its throat cut with matted blood down its front. And then you get a really weird description of the lamb right after that. It says it has seven horns. But okay, remember in the Revelation, these are not literal physical descriptions. Seven means perfection, completion. Horns was the Old Testament image of strength, power. Seven horns, perfect power. Here is this lamb that looks weak, looks like it's been killed, and yet it contains perfect, absolute strength and power. Seven eyes, which which it says are the seven spirits of God, which is just Revelation's spooky way of talking about the Holy Spirit, meaning this lamb is perfectly, completely filled and empowered by the Holy Spirit. So here's the paradox. You have this strong, ferocious lion... That is, that has triumphed over evil by becoming a weak lamb that has sacrificed himself. You have a strong, ferocious lion that has conquered and triumphed over evil 
by becoming this weak lamb with its throat cut. This is telling you that the central event of human history is the cross of Jesus. The cross of Jesus. The way that Jesus has chosen to deal with the evil and the injustice and the oppression of the world is not to throw lightning bolts at it, but to enter, in, enter into it himself. And so he comes, and though he was innocent and did nothing wrong, and he perfectly loved God and perfectly loved his neighbor, he was accused of crimes that he didn't commit. And he was arrested, and he was brought to a court, and underwent a corrupt and unjust trial, where he could at any point have spoken up and defended himself, but he kept silent the whole time. And then he submitted his body to be barbarically tortured and murdered at the hands of criminals. And he underwent an unjust death for a crime that he did not commit. And you think, how in the world is that conquering? Winning by dying? That looks so weak, that doesn't make any sense. Some of you are thinking through this and you think, what Super Bowl team, like what team goes into the Super Bowl thinking, the way that we're going to beat the other team is to do nothing and let them crush us. Let's win by losing the game. That doesn't make any sense. How is this, how does this do anything? Well, I want you to think of it from two different angles with me. Here's the first angle that I want you to kind of think about this. Um, the Bible says that Jesus had all glory, he had all power in, in heaven, and he left it all, and he came down to live a, a life of obscurity, serving people, washing people's feet, caring for the poor and the homeless, and then he dies a death on a cross. And you think, that's so weak, that's so pitiful. And yet, uh, he's now one of the most influential people that has ever walked the face of the earth. I mean, PBS and Time Magazine are always kind of doing these specials. Who's the most influential human ever? Jesus always makes top three. I mean, here we are. We're in Knoxville, Tennessee. We're, like, Jerusalem is a long ways away. This happened 2,000 years ago, and we're in a room talking about him, singing about him. Some of us believe we're even singing to him. That at least has to show you, here is someone who gave up all power, and he's at least influenced us. He is conquered by his sacrificial act of weakness, sacrificial act of love. But here's the second way that I kind of want you to look at this. You know, we just celebrated um, Martin Luther King um, Jr. Day, um, who was obviously a Christian minister and approached the issues of racial injustice and systemic injustice uh, as a Christian from a biblical perspective. And so it was always alluding to and referencing the Bible in his speeches and in his, you know, Iconic, famous, I have a dream speech. Uh, it's, you know, peppered with scripture references. And uh, towards the beginning, I reread this today. He, he, he says this, and he quotes um, an Old Testament, Old Testament book. He basically is saying, you know, as black people in America, we will not be satisfied until, quote, justice rolls down like the waters. Which is a quote straight from the book of Amos in the Old Testament. But that ache that we feel when we see these awful, atrocious, barbaric things that happen in our world, that ache is that vision of we want justice to roll down. We want justice to roll down and to have somebody deal with the evil, deal with the sin. But here's the scary thought about this, is that if justice is going to roll down, I'm standing at the bottom of that hill too. 
If God is committed to punishing and dealing with sin and oppression and evil, unfortunately, that involves me. And that involves you. I mean, every single one of us came into this room tonight as, at some level, we're victims of something, some level of oppression, some levels. People have hurt us, people have sinned against us, people have wounded us. We are all victims. And yet the Bible also says, if you even know yourself remotely, that you're also a villain. That you and I participate in the injustice. A lot of us live in unjust social systems that we just turn blind eyes to because it's comfortable. We hurt people, we sin against people, we take advantage of people. We're victims, yes, but we're also victimizers. We're also villains. And so Jesus has chosen to deal with our sin, not by violence and force, but by instead stepping in and taking the justice that we deserve on the cross. That he takes the bullet in our place. That as the, ju- as the justice rolls down, he steps in and he lets it fall on him so that it doesn't fall on us. And this is why in verse 9, all of heaven erupts with worship saying, worthy are you to take the scroll to open its seals for you were slain. And by your blood you ransom people from, for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Look, some of you have heard me tell this story before, but I'm just going to repeat it because it's an amazing story. Again, true story. A couple years ago, uh, in, in Massachusetts, there was a 55-year-old man working at a little, like, market store, like a little 7-Eleven. He was behind the counter. His name is Juan Rodriguez. And in comes this 20-year-old thug who pulls a knife on him and demands money. So 55-year-old Juan Rodriguez kind of freaks out, distracts him for a second, is able to pick up a baseball bat and then chases this dude out of the store. So now both of these guys are running down the street, 55-year-old dude chasing 20-year-old dude, and 55-year-old guy is shouting for help. And so there's this group of people that see what's happening, and they run over and tackle the 20-year-old thief, you know, robber. And while he's sort of, you know, on the ground contained, 55-year-old guy, I guess, catches his breath, calls the police and kind of is explaining the situation. But as he's on the phone with the police, he notices that this kind of mob has formed of about 8 to 10 people that are just mercilessly beating this would-be robber to a pulp. They're kicking his ribs. They're, they're ripping off his clothes. He's being bloodied. He's being pounded against the sidewalk. He's, he's literally down to his underwear. And guy on the phone who sees this happening runs into the middle of the mob and jumps on top of him and protects him. So that now the blows are raining down upon him. He was in critical condition, but he saved his life, taken to the hospital after the mob stopped eventually pounding. I just think that's an amazing story because here's this guy who had a knife put in his face, and he's the, he's the one that now jumps in and is taking the blows on his behalf. The Bible says every one of us, myself included, have basically stuck a knife in God's face. That we're all culpable, we're all sinners, we all carry around evil in our hearts and in our actions and in our minds. And God says, okay, instead of having justice rain upon you, I'm going to send my son. And he's going to shield you and he's going to take the blows of justice that you deserve. So that when you find yourself hidden in him, you'll be safe and secure. And what that does is when you begin to tap into that by faith, that act of weakness 
of sacrifice conquers you. Where you're no longer an enemy of God, you're now a lover of God. That act of sacrifice actually conquers people. And it turns God's enemies into his friends and his lovers. That is the central act of human history, the central event of human history. That's the hope of human history. Lastly, what is your role in world history? Hey, look, there's just, there, man, there's so much in this passage. I had to leave so much untouched just for the sake of time. But I, I want to zoom into one little verse in verse 10. It says that Jesus is worthy because he ransomed people by his blood and, quote, you have made them a kingdom and priest to our God and they shall reign on the earth. God reigns over the world, how? By suffering for the world. And he makes his people to reign with him in the same way. Meaning, we are powerful and influential in the world to the degree that we're willing to become sacrificial lambs. That's it. That's our role in world history now. That we will be powerful. We will reign and exert influence in the world to the extent that we're willing to become sacrificial lambs. Look, if you're a Christian tonight, I know not all of you are, but if you are, um, you want to have impact and influence over other people for the sake of Jesus, right? I mean, this is kind of like what we do. But the way that Christians so often think about the way that that works is we think, I'm just going to live such an awesome life and I'm going to do just such awesome things and just be happy all of the time that people will be so blown away by the sheer awesomeness of how awesome I am that they're going to come up to me and be like, dude, how can I get some of what you've got? And then I'll have this opportunity to tell them about Jesus, and then they'll become a Christian, and it will be awesome. And then I will have this awesome story to tell other people about how awesome I was in helping this person become awesome too. But that's not really the way that Jesus usually works, because what Jesus is saying, at least what this passage is saying, is that if you want influence and power over other people's lives, the way that you do it is not by you being awesome, it's by you suffering and laying down your life for someone else. It's by you being willing to kind of have your throat slit for someone else's sake. And so what, I know that's graphic, but what does that look like practically? Well, here's a couple, let me just give you a couple thoughts before we end on what this could look like practically. I think it could look like um, when someone wounds you or hurts you or betrays you, it looks like you forgiving them. Because everything in you screams, that feels weak, that feels awful, that feels like death. I got an email this week that is probably one of the meanest, uh, this was a couple weeks ago, probably one of the meanest emails I've ever gotten in my life. And everything in me just wanted to retaliate and just drop a nuke back on this person. And I struggled to forgive this person because what it felt like is it felt like I'm just letting them off the hook. They've done this awful, evil thing to me, but to forgive them feels like I just have to absorb it. It feels like I have to die. And that's what forgiveness is, is that you absorb the evil that's inflicted on you, that you meet unkindness with kindness. That's one way it could look like. Here's another way. Uh, Go to get coffee with somebody else. Go get coffee with someone else. You think that feels so inconsequential? That looks so irrelevant That's going to cost me some time. That's going to cost me some money. That's going to cost me some comfort, uh, especially if I don't really know the other person. It's going to be a little awkward and weird at first. That feels like it has no power in it to go get coffee with someone else. 
But do you have any idea of how special that is? To be invited to a face-to-face conversation with another human being? To have someone look at you and say, I want to get to know you. You matter, and I'm interested in you. Who are you, and what is your story? You know what? That, that can be life-altering to receive that sort of weak act of love. Here's another one. Um, how else can you sacrifice for other people? Uh, you can use your mental energy to remember someone else's name. You think that feels so trite and irrelevant and small? What is remembering someone else's name going to do? But, do you, but you know what it's like. When, it's when you meet somebody for the first time and then you see them like a week or so later and they remember your name, you know how special that is. Because what that tells you is that person gave up some mental bandwidth <laughs> to actually consider me to put me on their radar. It's so profound, it's so special, it's unbelievably powerful, and yet it looks so weak, it looks so stupid. Remembering someone's name, how else? Uh, You can help someone with their homework. Buy someone a drink, buy someone a meal. Set aside time, set aside something that you have to do that's really important to make space for someone in your schedule. That's what it looks like, that you giving up things for someone else. Some of you are in fraternities and sororities. The way that you take your house for Jesus' sake is not by going through the front door and planting a Jesus flag in the middle of the keg party and making sure everybody knows that you disagree with what they're doing. It looks like you laying down your life for the people in your house where you're the person that's holding back the hair of your sorority sister as they're hugging the toilet. You're the person that's driving your fraternity brother home from the party when they've had too much to drink. You're, you're sacrificing, you laid on your life for them. Some of you are young life leaders. How do, you, how do you win over these high school students for Jesus? It isn't by you being this awesome, cool, funny, adventurous, perfect, hilarious, awesome person that they can only one day hope to be like. It's by you dying for them. By you, by you dying a million little deaths by having a million little conversations about something that they really care about but that you could care less about. It's by you making time for them by giving up your Friday nights to go to their games. You dying. You laying down your life for them. And you put all that together and you think, okay, forgiving people, remembering people's names, making space in their schedule, getting coffee with people, that doesn't look strong. That doesn't look powerful. And yet this passage is saying... That is the power and the strength and the force that conquers the world. That is actually what conquers the evil world. Because if you're a Christian, that's how you've been conquered. And if you are a Christian here tonight, that's the reason why you're breathing right now. To figure out who in my life can I lay down my life for? Who do I need to serve? Who do I need to sacrifice myself so that they can flourish? So that's really the question I want to end with tonight. I know this was big, and I know this was heavy, and I know this was long. But if you get in with one question tonight, I want you to think, that, think about this. Who in your world, who in your sphere of influence do you need to lay your life down for so that the kingdom of God can flood in with complete power and complete strength to conquer by you losing? That's the question for you to consider tonight. Let me pray. Father, give us eyes to see that the lion has become the lamb. And give us a real uh, faith to tap into that story. That human history and world history is moving towards a happy ending. And Father, would you enable us by your grace to become a part of it. 
that we would enter into that same story, that same pattern to lay down our lives for our friends, to lay down our lives for the people that have hurt us, to lay down our lives for even our enemies so that you and your kingdom would be seen as more beautiful and more believable. I pray that you would use us, uh, would you use us despite us. And I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.